If you're ready to take your destiny into your own hands, you've come to the right place. This is Ordeshi, the Bulletproof Entrepreneur, featuring interviews with the most exciting and amazing entrepreneur. Here's your host, Chi Odogu. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today's guest is Richard Chappell. Richard is known as the SoCal Internet Lawyer. He represents savvy entrepreneurs that are looking to do business on the internet. He primarily works with startups, solopreneurs, and entrepreneurs, and helps them with issues ranging from incorporation, copyright infringement, DMCA notices and compliance, reputation management, and lots more. I'm pleased to have him on the show today to discuss his life story and his entrepreneurial journey. Richard, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me on. Tell us a little bit about yourself and... Um, how you got into practicing internet business law? Sure. I uh, grew up in Southern California. Uh, I still live there now. I'm in San Diego. Uh, and let's see, oh, let's say 1992, passed the California bar exam and became an attorney. Started practicing with a, a boutique legal firm. And the firm specialized in complex litigation. So we handled... Uh, wrongful death cases. We defended wrongful death cases, uh, defended hospitals, and we also pursued uh, insurance companies in litigation known as bad faith litigation. And that those lawsuits involve uh, insurance companies trying to get out of covering their uh, insureds, people who had paid for policies, typically in situations where there was going to be a large payout and the insurance company just didn't want to pay. Uh, it's very complex litigation. Did that for about seven years. Uh, then in 1999, I accepted a position uh, as a professor in Russia, went to Russia for a year and taught uh, business law and just basic English and law and a whole variety of things. It was uh, more of a break. I was suffering a bit of a burnout um, from the practice of law. And uh, during that year, it gave me a chance to really think about you know the aspects of uh, life that I enjoyed, the aspects of practicing law that I didn't enjoy, and try to tailor uh, a better ideal as to, uh, you know, how I wanted to proceed from there. Uh, I think typically when you get tied into a business, any business idea, you have sort of an idea of this is the way it's supposed to work. And then you have to decide whether, you know, that actually works for you or not once you get into it, maybe make some changes. So that was good for that. When I came back, I had a friend who was an attorney, a gentleman named Greg Geelan. And uh, he was just getting involved with uh, internet law. He was the CEO of a company that was an online business. And, uh, he started talking to me about it. We ended up uh, forming a firm, and then I've uh, been practicing internet law ever since. Uh, in 2004, he took off uh, to Australia because his wife had to move for a job. But um, since then, I've been working with internet businesses. Um, the reason I ended up in this field is uh, has a, a unique aspects for a lawyer that you don't find in other fields. Most of the other legal fields are pretty well established. Uh, contract law, uh, you know, it's been around for hundreds of years. Um, in 2000, when I got into internet law, I mean, it sounds laughable now, but you have to think about Facebook wasn't around. Google was just launching. I think Google was still called Backrub then, which was its original name. Um, you know, AOL was the big force in the United States. So you had the dial-up modems that made those horrible cranking noises yeah. when you tried to get online. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so from the legal aspect, it was all very wide open. How would copyright apply online? How would you have all these different issues? So for a lawyer, it was it was interesting because it was uh, an opportunity to get in at the ground floor and you know help establish policy in some of these areas. Uh, and the second reason was one of my complaints about practicing law was uh, the long hours, 
uh, in a traditional law firm, you're expected to work, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And if you don't, you'll never progress up the, up the ladder. And, um, you know, you do that for a few years and for some people it's, you know, it's enjoyable and, you know, they're happy with it. I think for a lot of lawyers, probably that's their biggest complaint is yeah. that there's no life. You know, you don't, you don't have a life. Um, so doing the internet side of the game is working with very small businesses and, you know, I have months where I'm extremely business uh, busy, but I also have months where I have tons of free time. And so, you know, if it's Tuesday, a beautiful day, I can grab the dog and the girlfriend and go, you know, hiking up in the hills or something in the afternoon, which in a traditional law firm you would never do. Uh, it would just be, you know, impossible. Um, so, you know, for me, it was a lifestyle issue. Uh, and then finally, I think the most important thing is entrepreneurs are amazing people. They have some of the greatest ideas you've ever heard of. They may have some of the worst ideas you've ever heard of. Um, but the point is that they're being creative. And in the legal profession, a lot of law, particularly in litigation, is tearing things down. It's destroying things. Um, working with entrepreneurs, you're building things. And even though they're not my ideas, you know, there's a certain joy out of watching a client grow from somebody in, who's working out of their garage with an idea into you know somebody who's now got a four-story building and you know, is, is an eternal chaos as they grow madly, <laughs> uh, you know, but to see people be successful yeah. uh, and to take, and to take small ideas and grow, uh, you know, there's, it's, it's very rewarding to watch that. Oh, cool. So, um, you, you said a lot here, but let me just, um, pinpoint one thing. You made a transition to Russia to go, uh, be a law professor for about a year before you came back to the state. Do you remember like a particular case that you worked on that you were going through the motions, you know, coming to the office, going through the casework, and then you realize that, man, what I'm doing here really, really sucks. You know, I don't want to spend the rest of my life doing this kind of work and just feeling icky about myself and what I do for a living. Uh, yes, there was actually. Well, there it was a lot of cases, but there was one case in particular. Um, it wasn't a bad faith case. It was a... Uh, medical malpractice case for a hospital that would go unnamed. Um, the individual in it was 28 and he had injured himself in a parking lot. He worked for Home Depot and he'd injured himself and uh, one of our defendant physicians had done a surgery on him and it was alleged that malpractice had occurred and that um, the L5 nerve that travels down your leg and controls your sensation and your ability to move your leg um, had been uh, for lack of a better term, cut, and so that he no longer had feeling, and no longer could move his leg, um, and he was 28. And I was at the time, oh, I think 32, and he looked exactly like a good friend of mine. <laughs> and, uh, and I started just thinking about, you know, wow, is this really, you know, where I want to? This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Um, you know, the problem was that, uh, uh, you know, we prevailed in the case, and maybe we shouldn't have. Uh, if, you know, if you're talking about concepts of justice and it was difficult to think about what his future life was going to be yeah. and from a from a legal perspective as a lawyer, you know, that's something if any lawyers are listening to, you know, they'll, they'll laugh because lawyers are, if you're going to be a lawyer, you have to be, um, you know, unemotional about it, if you will. Uh, the way the legal system works, at least in the United States, the theory is that both sides should represent their clients as enthusiastically as possible, and the definition of justice is whatever result the jury or judge returns. 
and that's true. Um, but you know, there are cases, certainly the infamous OJ Simpson case in the United States is, you know, where the legal counsel on one side is just, you know, much better than the other. And then you, you don't, you don't always end up with what I would call justice. And, uh, that case for some reason just bothered me. I've done a lot of, you know, done a lot of wrongful death cases. So it wasn't that it was just that, but, uh, you know, it just, I think at that point you just start thinking about, well, you know, I mean, it wasn't an emotional break or anything of that sort. It was just, you know, is this really what I want to continue to do? Yeah. Um, so I was actually trying to quit when I went to Russia and I was, you know, they instead just said, well, we'll pay you for a year. You know, go do whatever you want. Go stare at your navel. Um, and so that's how I ended up in Russia. It was one of those things. How can I get as far away from this in some place that has no, okay. uh, you know, no, no okay. similar instances. Okay, so but when people think of like trying to escape their life to try and reinvent themselves, nobody goes and thinks, "Hmm, I'll fly off to Russia." You you normally hear somebody say, "Okay, let me go to the beach somewhere in the Bahamas or somewhere in the south of France or something." Why 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 did you pick Russia? Uh, because I traveled a bit in my life, and I think really I enjoy traveling. But the one thing I really always wanted to do is be immersed in a culture that was completely different than, or at least my understanding of it was completely different than what, you know, where I lived. Um, it ultimately didn't turn out to be that <laughs> different. People are pretty much the same wherever they are. Um, but it was, you know, it was one of those things where it was a fresh, you know, breath of fresh air. And it was really a chance. Um, as an attorney, you tend to be very detail oriented and you tend to have, at least I tend to have uh, more difficulty seeing the big picture. Um, because there's so many, the nature of law is that, you know, you're looking at subsection 24, you know, CDI three of some law and, and that's your concern and, you know, the areas that you have to deal with the client. Um, but looking at overall, okay, you know, what changes would I want to make those types of issues? It's, it's more difficult. Um, so getting completely out of that arena where nobody could reach me by phone or anything of that sort, um, you know, was, was kind of what I was looking for and this popped up and I, I thought, well, yeah, go live in Siberia. Who wants to do that? Ah, I'll do it. And, you know, then it ultimately turned out to be a great year. Oh, nice. So did you experience any type of crazy adventures while you were there? Because I've heard a lot of stories of, from my friends and family members that have gone to Russia. Anybody that goes to Russia typically comes back with like one, wow, WTF story, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, there were quite a few stories. Yeah, there was, uh, no, there's always one WTF story. So let us have one. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I was in a city called Chita, which is in um, Siberia. It's about a day east of Lake Baikal, which is, I think, the biggest freshwater lake in the world. And uh, it was the middle of winter. And one night we decided to go to Lake Baikal. So we drive all the way out there. Uh, and you have, you have private cars. You don't have taxis or anything of that sort. And somebody is driving us, I don't know who, but a, a Russian friend had set it up. And we get out there. We're on a two-lane road. There are big trucks coming the other way. And we eventually get to wherever it is we're going. And we get out and we get a bite to eat. And we're sitting there. And the driver takes off his glasses. And he has only one eye, which is a little startling because these roads we've been driving on were very narrow. And so with your one eye, you don't have a lot of depth perception. Yeah. And so... The other American, there was another American with me there, and uh, our Russian friend. We were like the two Americans were looking at each other, like, "What? <laughs> Are you insane?" You know, we just did. I mean, we drove through the night. I mean, he was a great driver. We didn't have any problems, but you know, it was just like, "Wait." <laughs> <laughs> 
really, it really pushes the limits of what you think is impossible. Where you have a one-eyed man driving you in the dead of night in the middle of it, it does. Siberia. It, yeah, there were there were endless stories. It was it was very very funny here. I mean, it was. Uh, you know, and I think the biggest thing that I got out of it was, you know, people are essentially the same everywhere. They're good people, bad people, you know, whatever. Um, but, you know, people have the same basic interests. It was, uh, if you ever get a chance to go to Russia, particularly get outside of Moscow or St. Petersburg, you know, I would definitely recommend it. Uh, New Year's in, in particular can be a, a amazing time. It runs for about two weeks. So wow. it's, uh, it's yeah, they uh, they do enjoy having a party. That's for sure. Yeah, no, I've- I've heard, like I said, a lot of crazy stories from friends and family. That anybody that goes to Russia has like one story about Russia that is like, man, that's crazy. <laughs> oh yeah, on New Year's, one of the things happened on New Year's. So everybody lives in the five-story concrete buildings that you see in the, uh, you know, on TV and everything else. And so it was New Year's. And it came down uh, to the countdown. Everybody goes outside and we're standing there in the yard. There are probably twenty or thirty people. And a uh, guy next to me comes out and he is just completely plastered and he has an AK 47 and he's shooting the AK 47 off. <laughs> what? And everybody's running around trying to <laughs> avoid all the bullets coming back down. And it was just uh, every day was something fascinating. Oh my great people though. Really great people. I stayed in touch with all of them. Nice. Nice. So, I mean, after so many adventures there, you're, re- you're refreshed, you're rejuvenated, you come back and you're now, working with your friend as an internet lawyer. So as you're in this new field of internet businesses, you know, circa 2000, right around the millennium, you know, what were some of the opportunities that you saw when you were starting out that you were like, man, this is really something that could stick with me for a long time because right now the internet, even though it's almost, what, 20-something years old, it still feels like we're still at the very, very early stages, you know, it, even if somebody were to start as an internet business lawyer now. So, like, what were some signs you saw earlier? You know, you've already alluded to, you know, working with entrepreneurs, creating stuff, but do you, did you, do you think you can look back and recognize some trends that you said? That you know, I think, I think the, the biggest trend that was interesting, which still exists today, and I, I think maybe a lot of people don't think it does, is the ability to compete. Um, regardless of your size, what really carries the day on the web is innovation and the the good idea. Um, okay. You know, in, in traditional brick and mortar businesses, let's say before the internet became a commercial medium, you know, you may come up with a good idea, and it was a common business tactic for a larger company to come in and try and crush you. <laughs> yeah. You know, it just it just you know swamp you um financially either through advertising or or what have you you know ethical or unethical means and i think what you see on the web particularly at that time was that the bigger companies you know they they were just plodding along and people that would come out with ideas uh you know give you an example and it's kind of an odd example but yahoo okay as as laughable as yahoo is now at that time they were dominant yeah. Yeah, they were really the dominant search engine and Google was a nobody. Um, you know, and, and Yahoo just did not evolve and did not they didn't attack any of the issues. I mean, search back then was just horrible. You know, the results you would get were terrible and you had Google, you know, come out and and they attacked it. Um, you know, from the aspect of well, let's provide better results and you know, whatever you may think of the results. 
uh, you know, they only had a hundred grand when they started out. And Yahoo had millions and millions. And Yahoo, if they'd been smart, you know, would have purchased Google probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't. And you know, and you saw how quickly things move. Same thing with Facebook. Um, it, you know, and those are big companies, and everybody knows them. So that's why I use them as an, ex- as an example. But there are smaller companies that did well too. Mm. Uh, and it was really just the innovation, WordPress. You know, that whole business model. Uh, you know, WordPress is the dominant platform these days on the web and the idea of giving away things for free like that in a larger company you know you would be laughed out of the boardroom before you were fired and escorted to the front doors and told never to show your face again um so people having these ideas and pushing forward uh, the other thing about it that you see is people having the ideas and pushing forward when the law is very unclear and with larger companies you know they always want to know what the the legal layout is going to be be able to get a company like uber Uber, you know, not necessarily an online business per se, although they, they use the medium, but the issue of whether uh, the people who are driving for them are employees or not, mm-hmm. it's an esoteric legal issue, but it's an important one because if they're considered employees, um, Uber has to pay out all kinds of benefits and things of that sort, and their profit margin becomes next to nothing. And so you have this big legal fight going on in the U.S. now in all the states over this issue, but Uber moved ahead regardless of that issue. And a larger company might might not have. Um, so you see the innovation and, and people's ability to to go out and compete with larger companies and to fill niches and to fill voids, um, you know, that are out there, and really take advantage of those and grow. Not because they have the physical or the financial might, but because they're smart and they're flexible and they move quickly. Yeah. And you know, and I think that that's something that should be rewarded in business. And so it's nice to see that. And that obviously was really occurring in 2000. It still occurs today, although it's more subtle. Mm-hmm. Um, but you see companies coming in and they're filling voids. So in the U.S., for instance, privacy is a big issue with consumers. Well, you, you'd think it is. It's difficult to tell how much they care. But it's an issue that it's discussed a lot. And so you have a search engine, DuckDuckGo, uh, and they are, they've come out and they're competing directly with Google being in Yahoo. And their unique selling position is – you know, that we will not collect your information, yeah. you know. And so for people that that's an issue to, you know, they're growing and they're growing dramatically with those people. Mm-hmm. The problem that they face is, you know, a lot of consumers in the U.S. are, uh, I get a little cynical, but let's just call them sheep. And, <laughs> you know, they, they don't care about these issues as much as maybe they should. Um, so how big will they grow? Who knows? But they're filling that niche. Yeah. And I think – in a traditional business, if you had said, well, you know, let's try and build computers and compete with IBM, you know, most people would say no. Uh, but DuckDuckGo has come in, compete directly with, you know, Google, and they're doing pretty well. Yeah. And it kind of makes you wonder, you know, looking at it from a legal perspective when it comes to innovation. Like you mentioned something earlier when we were talking about um, legal Zoom, you know, practicing law without like a legal license, like. Innovations right. like that that are kind of ambiguous, but yet still able to um, continue in the business environment. How how does that um, affect the way we as consumers and we as like entrepreneurs should look at you know consuming and purchasing legal services, for example? Because we have like right. disintermediation service, like you just mentioned, Uber, something like Legal Zoom. And there are, there are tons of other services like that, you know. So as entrepreneurs, how should we look at those services in terms of a legal perspective, in terms of a consumption 
perspective? Well, you know, it's it's a huge debate right now, to be quite honest. As a lawyer, you know, in fear of being beaten to death by my fellow lawyers, if I were to say anything less than you should use a lawyer 100% of the time, um, <laughs> you know, the truth is, you know, what? how is the, the public best served by, um, you know, these services? So with LegalZoom, for instance, um, you know, you can form, let's say, an LLC or something like that. And to be honest, if you're doing it just for yourself, you know, you're probably okay. It's not that big of an issue. If you're forming a company and you have three founders and you're going to have a vesting schedule of, you know, four one vesting schedule where, um, you know, the equity vests over four years with a one year cliff, you know, you don't want to use LegalZoom because they're not sophisticated. They're not really in intended for that type of work. Um, but on the other scale, there are a lot of people that don't have significant income and can't afford an attorney. So is it better? that they have no representation or is it better that they get something that is at least basic in place? So, you know, for instance, imagine somebody that needs a will. Well, do they go spend 600 bucks or a thousand dollars with, you know, an attorney or, you know, is it better that they just spend, you know, $75 or whatever it is, legal zooms of the world charge. Um, you know, my personal view is that if it is something simple, it's better to at least have something basic. Um, and legal zooms of the world are fine. If you're going to do something a little more sophisticated and it's going to matter, it's a key aspect to your personal life or your business, um, then I would use a lawyer. So, for example, uh, you know, as entrepreneurs, one of the one of the biggest issues that we see with entrepreneurs is they form a business and they don't they don't address the touchy legal issues up front. And when you form a business, what you always want to do is you want to address equity, you want to address roles, responsibilities. And when people can be fired, <laughs> um, be, because you know, statistically, one of your founders is is going to turn out to be a bit a bad apple. Yeah, and I, I think I was just going to say we've all seen you know the social network. We've heard what's happened in um, Snapchat, for example. So th right. these things kind of come up more often than we'd expect. You know, so how should um startups, you know, young entrepreneurs, founders, and so forth, really address these in a practical sort of sense, because nobody really wants to start talking about legal terms with their buddy when they're in the garage trying to start a business, you know? Right. Well, you want to go talk to an attorney, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, that there's is no, the only really, that's no really the only way. It. It's, it's not because you need you need to be in compliance with the law and there are issues like securities and things of that sort. You have to be very careful. They're very technical. Mm -hmm. um, but you also want to have, uh, you want to blame the attorney. The attorney is the bad guy. Okay. You know, my clients, I always tell my clients, look, if you're negotiating with somebody or you, you have to tell them something, you, you know, they're not going to be happy about, blame it on me. You know, I'd love to do this, but my attorney told me. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and so you go, you want to go see the attorney and the attorney's going to say, you know, well, here are the key issues. You know, and you need to work them out. Here are options. You know, and the attorney's the person who's saying, "Look, you have to do this." The reason why you want to do it, and I understand exactly what you're saying. You know, you're getting into business. You're excited. You want to pursue that business idea. You don't want to deal with these issues. The reason why you want to deal with them up front, why it's critical, is there's no money on the table. Mm -hmm. There's no revenue coming in, and that's the time to decide things. You should really think of it as a prenuptial agreement, um, because the problem is once money starts coming in. And, you know, three of the founders are working hard and one of the founders is, you know, not showing up for work. Um, you know, the only way to resolve that at that point is everybody gets an attorney and you all go to court. 
And then you're going to have a judge who knows almost nothing about your business trying to decide on a fair result. And this happens constantly. I mean, we all laugh at Facebook and Snapchat and everything else. This happens constantly. And the difference between most entrepreneurs and those companies is those companies have the money to deal with that. Smaller businesses, you don't. I mean, literally, I can't tell you how much this comes up. And if you just take these steps and you you address investing, you address, uh, you know, uh, roles and responsibilities, when people can be removed, um, you know, the vesting schedule in particular is very important because if, you know, the four years with one year cliff is, is commonly used and attorneys will tell you it's the perfect solution, which isn't true. But the way that that generally works is it says, okay, you know, we're going to set out the equity for every uh, founder and it's going to vest over four years, but there's going to be a one year cliff. And what that means is in the first year, um, you know, you don't get any equity. You have to complete that first year. Yeah, typically I'm, in the first year. Oh, sorry. Just before. Before you continue, uh, could you just expe- explain what vesting means? Because I understand what it means, but some people might not. Right. So let's say you and I uh, start a company, mm-hmm. and uh, we're the two founders, and so we're going to have 90%, basically. Um, let's say we're going to take 90% of the total equity in the company. So let's say there's 100 shares, just for the easy math. So we're going to distribute 90 shares to you and I, uh, equally 45%. What the vesting schedule is, is it's just going to say over four years, we're going to receive um, 25% of the shares that we should get. So you have you don't get all the shares up front. You have to work, work. Okay. and you have to perform over those four years. Okay. But with the cliff, what the cliff says is in that first year, regardless of how much you work in that first year, until you complete the first year, you don't get any equity. And the reason for that is typically in the first year, um, you're going to get a pretty good idea about the founders that you're with. Everybody's excited to start a business. It's mm-hmm. when you actually have to run the business that you start seeing whether people are truly committed or not. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that often shows up pretty quickly. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, I've had clients where it's year five and suddenly, you know, one of the founders just loses interest or whatever. Um, but the four in one approach is, is, you know, a good place to start. Um, and, that's really the whole role of that is to get commitment out of the founders yeah. and to get them, you know, to commit to it. Um, not a perfect solution, but definitely one to start with. Okay, great. So in your experience, what are the five biggest legal challenges or legal mistakes startups make, excluding what we've just talked about, um, putting everything in writing up front? Like what are like right. maybe three or four other big mistakes that you see constantly? Sure. Well, what we just discussed was definitely number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, I think, would be controlling IP, intellectual property. Um, when you look at a business, you have to ascertain what's the value of that business. And a lot of people will say, well, it's our website design or our domain, and that's true to some extent. But really, what's really the value is the domain and then uh, any intellectual property. So content that you're producing that's copyrighted, trademarks, logos, things of that sort. Uh, and when you're starting a business, a lot of people, uh, particularly if the founders have not run a business before, don't understand that the business entity exists as an independent person. Yeah. Uh, that, that's really the whole legal fiction behind that. That's how it protects you. Um, but that, that person is only as valuable as the assets that are assigned to it. So let's say we go back to our situation and you and I are going to start a business. Before we go through the process of starting it, I go ahead and register a trademark for the name we want to use. You go ahead and purchase the domain. Um, We then start the company. If you never 
transfer the domain into the company and I never transferred the trademark, well, then the question becomes who actually owns those? Is it the company or not? And when it becomes an issue, it becomes an issue in two areas. One is if you go to seek outside funding um, because if somebody's a venture capitalist or an angel investor and they look at your company, they're going to do a due diligence audit of your company because they want to know what's there. And if they see your IP or something that they consider valuable is not in the company, you know, they're not going to invest in you or you're going to have to solve it. Um, and that's typically not hard. But the bigger issue that comes up is if one of the founders leaves. Um, so I have the trademark in my name and I leave, you know, and you say, well, you know, we need that trademark. And I say, well, I registered it. It's mine. I'll sell it to you for, you know, $500,000. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and now, you know, the fights start. Um, the other area where you see it with IP is when you use outside, uh, parties. And so that yeah, freelancers or even just companies, okay. um, to do work for you and they create IP who controls that. Um, so you use an outside marketing company and let's say that one of the founders they're going to use as a personal brand. So it's that person's face and what have you on the content, um, you know, who owns that content. Mm -hmm. Copyright law is, is a bit bizarre because it was really established well before the internet ever came up. And the concern with copyright law, one of the significant concerns was that the people who are creating the copyrightable works weren't particularly sophisticated. Uh, and so under U.S. copyright law, for instance, um, the copyright to any work automatically vests with that person. So let's take Stephen King, the author. When Stephen King writes a book, um, when he finishes that book, he automatically owns the copyright to it. And the only way that copyright can be transferred is if there's a signed agreement. So with him, obviously, it's a publisher who's, who's paying him an upfront fee and then a royalty for the right to take that book and go copy it and sell it. Um, on the internet, uh, with an online business, if you have people creating code for you or what have you, um, you know they own that copyright. And so your agreements, you need written agreements with them, and that written agreement needs to have them assign the copyright to you um, so that your company has it. It's, it comes up you know, again when you're trying to sell the company or, or their copyright infringement claims and things of that sort. Um, so that's a big one. It's a, a boring issue, but an important one. Um, the third issue, yeah, yeah. <laughs> third issue is selecting the wrong content management system. Uh, we were talking about Facebook. Mm -hmm. Facebook's a great system. It has no, almost no limitations on how you use it. However, for an entrepreneur who's going to have inventory uh, and items of that sort, and they will look around often for a uh, all-in-one system. And there are some good systems out there where you can, you know, they'll give you a site and you can list your products and it, it tracks inventory and everything for you, which sounds wonderful, uh, typically for, you know, relatively small monthly fee. Um, but the problem, there are two problems. One, if you grow, can that system, um, you know, stay with you? Can it provide the service and the functionality that you need? And the answer is often no. And the second problem is, how do you get your stuff out of that system and into another platform? And many people are surprised to read <laughs> the terms and conditions when they want to do that and find that there's a very limited you know, ability to do that. Um, or the system itself contains a, a good bit of customized content, customized code. Okay. And so when you try, you try to transfer to another site, it's incredibly difficult. I had a, a client contact me and they had a e-commerce site and the site was running so slow. 
And um, they had purchased large amounts of bandwidth and what have you to try to speed it up. But the problem was they had come from a controlled CMS system mm. and moved it to their own system. And there were so many code conflicts, the programmers didn't even know where to start. Uh, but it just killed their business. Yeah. You know, you think about it. If you go to a site and you want to purchase something, you know, in this day and age, you expect those pages to load quickly. Mm-hmm. And if they don't, you're going somewhere else. Um, so, you know, making sure that you think, think through the CMS system, how am I going to get out of this if it doesn't work okay. or if they, they don't update it. Um, so that's, that's a big issue. Um, you know, I think to look at, uh, the other issue that I think is, is maybe not so much of a problem, but, um, I think spending money with an attorney myself, some other attorney to just discuss your idea up front, just so you know, the potential legal issues. Um, is important for two reasons. One, obviously, a little bit of knowledge is going to help you plan uh, to address those issues. It doesn't necessarily mean you need to stop if there's a problem. Uh, again, we use the the Uber example. You know, they knew they were going to have an issue with the drivers, but they plan for it, and so they're fine. But the second issue is, um, and people people don't take advantage of this as much as they should. If there is a unique legal issue that applies to the type of business model that you're going to run, the subject matter, what have you, um, look at it and try to develop a unique selling position based on that. So we go back to we go back to the privacy issue. Google's having a lot of problems right now in the European Union because of privacy regulations. Yeah. It's only going to get worse next year. Um, the business model that Google uses, which is sweeping up huge amounts of personal information and then selling it to marketers isn't really viable in the EU. Um, and so the, the answer that you see to that, which we already discussed, is DuckDuckGo. Well, DuckDuckGo is just a regular search engine. They just don't use the private information you know, to target people. That's their unique selling position. I think there are a lot of companies that if they took that position, they could really, you know, really set themselves apart from the competition. A, a perfect example, which is kind of maddening, is Apple. Apple doesn't use your personal information, even though they collect a good bit of it. They don't use it for marketing purposes. They don't have that business model. They're just trying to sell you devices. And Apple's even talked about this. Uh, their CEO has talked about, you know, that's what differentiates them from Google. If Apple were to launch a search engine uh, and compete directly with Google, I know that's Safari, but I mean, they don't really promote it. Mm-hmm. If they were really to get out there and compete with Google, Google would have some serious problems. Yeah. You know, and so in your business model, I think whatever it is, whatever subject dating sites, you know, whatever it is that you're interested in, talking to an attorney up front to understand the legal issues, it can be helpful. But not only so much just from, you know, making sure you understand what, what's out there, but thinking about, OK, well, is there a potential to position myself, um, you know, in some some unique way compared to competitors, uh, you know, that's going to give me an advantage. And you see that, you know, plugins and things of that sort, there are a lot of those areas. I'll give you an example. There's a company called HCheck. Um, HCheck does uh, age verification for um, websites and apps. It's age verification of users. There is a law in the United States called the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. And it says for any, um, any website uh, or app cannot collect information from children under 13 unless they first get verified parental consent. And the EU in 2018, uh, in Article 8 of the new General Data Protection Regulation, is going to issue a similar provision. For them, it's going to be under 16. And lawyers such as myself are screaming about this because think about Facebook. How many kids do you think that are 15-year-olds are on Facebook? Quite a bit. 
millions. How is Facebook going to determine who's under 16? I mean, it's I to this day, I don't know how they're going to do it. <laughs> you know, and for my clients, how do I deal with that? Well, what this company, AHCheck, did was they set up a system to do it. And the system doesn't deal with, I don't think it deals with people who are already members, but it deals with um, new people. So if you're starting an app or a website, and let's say it's a gaming app where you know, it would be attractive to kids under 16, you can contact this company, and they, have, they will plug into your system, I believe it's a plug-in, that will handle the entire verification process. Okay, so and they, so, you don't have to worry about that. They take care of everything for you. Right. Nice. And it's a service. It's not sexy service. It's what I call a toilet paper service. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something. It's, it's necessary. Yeah. Right. It's something, you know, exactly. That's exactly what it is. You know, the joke in California, we had the California gold rush. And the joke was the people who were searching for gold almost never made money. But the people who were selling them shovels made a ton of money. And that's what that type of service is. It's exactly a toilet paper service. Not sexy, not interesting, but it's something that millions of websites and apps are going to need. Mm. And they they position themselves, you know, to solve that problem. Um, and so, a lot of businesses, you know, I think have an opportunity to do that and don't. Um, so that would definitely be one area to look at it. Uh, and then the final area, the much hated copyright law, <laughs> the bane of existence for every online business. Yeah. Um, copyright law difference a little bit uh, by region. The EU is about to issue a new one. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll address the U.S. copyright law because it's the most common that's looked at. Uh, it's the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA for short. Uh, it was enacted in 1998, and the purpose of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act was to try to create an informal process for dealing with copyright infringement online, specifically where uh, user-generated content was at issue. So how it works essentially is um, you need to recall that in 1998, most companies, most of the big companies we all know today either didn't exist or were just getting started. So the federal government was trying to create an environment where companies could grow without worrying about being sued into the ground. Um, And so if you take Facebook, for instance, I have my little page on Facebook. Let's say I go out to a site and I see a funny cartoon. I copy it and I publish it on my Facebook page. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't have the consent of the owner, and so I'm I'm committing copyright infringement. It's just kind of a classic infringement situation. So what the government was looking at was, well, you know, Facebook is going to face millions of copyright infringement lawsuits. How are they going to possibly survive this? Uh, you know, copyright infringement could literally take down, you know, 90% of the web. Yeah. So the DMCA says that as long as internet sites and app, uh, internet connected apps follow a certain compliance protocol, they cannot be sued for copyright infringement based on content uploaded by users. So we go back to the example. I've copied the, the, cartoon over that I think is funny, put it on my Facebook page. Uh, the copyright owner can sue me, but they cannot sue Facebook. Uh, now they may try, but a, a court will shut them down. And that's really all the DMCA was trying to address as far as the common copyright infringement issues that we talk about. There are other issues with rights management and things of that sort, but they're kind of esoteric. Um, so you had sent me over a link to a uh, celebrity. Uh, yes, the case study, yeah. Right. Uh, Miss, I'm sure I'm going to pronounce it wrong, Ikeji? Ikeji, yes. Ikeji. Uh, and apparently her site was taken down by Google. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know anything specific about her site, but I can give you some scenarios as to why that might have occurred. 
Um, Google is a U.S. company, and so they comply with the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, uh, even when complaints come from other countries. Uh, they receive something like 8 million complaints every couple of months. I mean, it's just maddening. It just, yeah, it tells you the volume of complaints. Mm. Uh, under the DMCA compliance process, for Google to get their immunity from being sued for copyright infringement, they have to take certain steps. And the way the process works is a copyright owner um, will come to Google and they will say, okay, this site is stealing my content. I didn't give consent to this. There's no defense. And they file something called a takedown notice. Google looks at the takedown notice, and here's where a lot of people are confused. They say, well, why did Google do this? Why did Google take down my content? Why did YouTube take down my content? Why did Facebook take down my content? And the answer is, when that complaint comes in, Google must take it down. It is not a choice. Oh. They have to. It's, it's an automated act, or they lose the immunity. Okay. Now, for larger companies like YouTube and Google, they will often you know, not take it down. Uh, because they'll look at it and if they see the complaint, it's just nonsense. You know, they just won't act. The reason they do that is they have the resources to fight any subsequent copyright infringement lawsuit. You know, a copyright infringement lawsuit might set them back 150000 to $500,000. Google made that amount of money right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's not an issue to them. For most people listening, it would be an issue. Um, but if you're wondering why, why your host or somebody does that, they're not being jerks to you. That's just what the law requires. Uh, at that point, the company then sends a notice to the person who posted that content saying, we received a copyright takedown notice saying essentially you're creating, you're committing infringement. And in 99% of the cases, that's the end of it because that person realizes, oops, I shouldn't have done that. Um, in some cases, you may have a, you know, somebody who considers, uh, you know, that there's a defense to the claim, such as they were reporting on news or something of that sort. And they'll then file a counter notice with Google. Google will then notify the copyright owner, hey, this counter notice came in. At that point, the copyright owner then has to decide whether they want to sue the user or not. But if they do sue them, it's just the copyright owner and the user that go to uh, court. Google or whoever the site is should not be dragged into it. Sometimes they are, but you can get them out quickly uh, through motions to dismiss once you know the law is presented to the judge. So in the situation with um, – uh, the celebrity, um, it appeared as though, and again, I don't know anything specific about this, that there were multiple complaints. Mm -hmm. And that raises an aspect of the DMCA that a lot of people don't understand. Um, one of the complaints that copyright owners had when the law was being put together was, well, what's to stop the person from just reposting the content again? Uh, you know, and, and repost and repost and repost. And basically get into a situation with copyright owners trying to whack a mole, um, you know, trying to, to keep, uh, keep up with everything. And so there's a, an aspect of the DMCA called the repeat, repeat infringer policy. What it says is internet companies such as Google have to create an internal policy that says, well, if one particular user gets, um, let's say, more than three successful complaints against them in two years, then they need to be terminated uh, as a user of our system because it's apparent that they're a repeat infringer and you know they're just not somebody who's going to be responsible when dealing with copyright issues online. And you'll see this on um, Instagram, on yes. uh, Tumblr, and sites of this sort. Because that's what I was about to ask you, that that's basically the business model of um, people that run large Instagram pages or large Facebook pages or just some aggregator bloggers that basically see news or content from one side and they repost it back on their site and they tend to generate views and traffic from that. 
So is it right. possible? So are you saying that if someone um, successfully reports people like these, whether it's a big Instagram page or a big website like Mr. KJ had, that they could successfully take down their website and get what kicked off their the system, that's the CMS that is hosting their business? Yes. Oh. Yes. Now the answer, obviously, if those complaints have no validity, is to file a counter notice, and at that point, you know, you're calling the bluff of the copyright owner. Okay. You know, and if it, and they have to either sue you at that point, which if you have a case, you can go defend it. Um, you know, if you have a viable defense, you can go defend it. So, for instance, a news, if you're pulling content from another site as part of a news story, news is what's called a fair use defense to copyright, and so you would be allowed to do that. Um, but you know, in most cases, there isn't a defense, <laughs> and so yeah. it's. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you run into these situations, but people don't understand the law. And so um, I had a young lady contact me. She had a Tumblr page with, you know, 50,000 followers, something of that sort. And she had been terminated. And, you know, she was just copying images from all over the web and she just didn't really seem to understand, um, you know, and there was no defense to what she was doing. Hmm. And, and so the, the reason these platforms have to do this is because if they don't, then they can be held liable for the infringing acts. Okay. Um, there's in the United States, um, you know, we, most people access the internet through their cable provider. Mm -hmm. And so in San Diego, um, for instance, where I am now, I use a cable provider named Cox communications yeah. and Cox communications was recently, uh, sued, uh, under the DMCA, uh, judgment of $25 million was returned against them. And the reason for it was that they were complying with the DMCA uh, and the repeat infringer provisions. However, a, a manager at the company either maliciously or negligently didn't understand the DMCA, and they sent out a memo <laughs> to, to the entire company, uh, to the customer service staff and what have you, that said, after we have terminated a repeat infringer, wait something like 30 days, whatever it was, and then contact them again and offer them a new account. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and... In honesty, he was looking at it almost assuredly from a marketing prospect of, well, let's bring him back on his clients. I don't think he was thinking it through. But they got sued by, I think it was one of the big music publishers. And now you have to think about a lawsuit and how a courtroom works. Okay, well, the way that you really can emphasize something in a courtroom, I realize on television it's all very dramatic. But a lot of trials are actually pretty boring because you have to go through a lot of minutia and you have to introduce evidence and it, it could be a little slow one of the most valuable aspects of a trial one of the most valuable techniques is to create exhibit boards so there are these large foam boards that you stick in front of the jury and what the company did that was suing cox was they created this large foam board and there was his email to everybody and then they just stuck it in front of the jury and then when the court ran out the instruction about repeat infringers it was obvious Cox had just completely violated the DMCA. <laughs> and when the jury went back to the room to consider the case, you know, that exhibit board went with them. Um, and so, you know, they got pounded. But that's why companies do that. That's why, you know, companies will say we're terminating your page or what have you. Okay. Well, that's, that's very interesting. So you mentioned yeah. something about a talking to a lawyer up front. If you're trying to do something like this in this field, especially with regards to copyright and um, trademark infringement and whatnot, I'm just basically having your legal ducks in a row 
Um, my question is this though, I've heard a lot of stories going either way, so I want to ask you, what's the appropriate way to compensate like a startup lawyer? If you're very early stage, you know, you still don't know, you don't have money, you don't have anything, but you're on a creative idea that could potentially change the world or maybe not, but you're doing something that's avant-garde, it's not really done before, and then, um, yeah, it's um, time to pay the lawyer for giving right. professional service advice or even if it's a marketing expert or whatever. And some people say, oh, you know, it's easy. Just give them a slice of equity up front or try and borrow money or something like that. And you hear so many scary stories going back and forth about the appropriate means of um, compensating the service provider. So what, what, what do you think? All right. Well... I tend to have a different view than most lawyers on this. Um, I tend to not like giving equity out. Uh, once it's gone, it's gone. Um, you know, giving options out is certainly one uh, one approach. But you know, the problem with options is they're not quite as valuable as most people think um, because there are tax implications. But there's also, you know, you're giving equity out. With a deadline, those options have to be exercised at some point. If they're not, they become null and void. Yeah. And and for a lot of people, the question is, you know, how, uh, you know, how quickly is the company going to grow into something where those options would have value? Because if the company doesn't go public, you know, exercising options for shares is going to create a tax situation for you in most situations. And those options are uh, the shares that you subsequently get have a value compared to the company, but they're incredibly difficult to liquidate. Um, you know, who's going to buy shares in a private company? They're not traded on, you know, the NASDAQ or, the, or what have you. Um, so there are all kinds of issues with those. I think the bigger question is, yeah, how do you compensate lawyers? For lawyers, um, on issues like this, like I'm discussing, it would be just, you know, you pay them for an hour. In some cases, they wouldn't charge you um, because they, they want to pick you up as a client for the future. But you buy an hour of their time, basically sit down, tell them, here's what we're doing, blah, blah, blah. You know, just we just want a general idea. You know, are we going to go to jail for this? <laughs> it's like some law that we're not aware of. You know, I'm not talking about getting into specifics, but just a general idea. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, any lawyer looking at the Uber body mo- uh, business model would have immediately said, well, you know, it's unique. There are going to be some unique legal issues. And here they are. Boom, 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 boom. Um, so that's really what we're talking about with that with foundation, um, with lawyers that are doing VC, um, you know, as I'd mentioned to you before we did the interview, I farm all my, all that work out, mm-hmm. but with those lawyers, you know, giving them a piece of equity is, is, you know, acceptable. Um, most lawyers that are going to work with startup entrepreneurs know that you don't have money. Um, so they're going to have flexible creative plans for getting compensated. Uh, and generally what they want to do is they want to be compensated, but you know, they're willing to spread it out in some way or form that makes it more palatable uh, with most of my clients are from payment plans, often long payment plans. Uh, because again, the goal for me is to try to pick up a client and keep them for 10 years or 20 years. It's mm-hmm. not a hit and run. Yeah, lifetime, um, lifetime value. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, so I have clients that, you know, literally have come back to me for you know 25 years mm-hmm. and that's from a legal perspective, that's kind of rare. Um, it's just, it's not so much because of me, but it's because I created a situation where, you know, they're comfortable with the billing. Uh, they don't have to worry about getting a monster bill at the end of the month and you know, what have you. Um, but when, when you're forming a company, um, you know, you want to work with counsel that's not only familiar with that, but frankly also has ties to VC funding. If you're looking for VC funding, uh, or angel investors, 
because you know they can supply real value there. It's not just the legal; it's also you know the investment themselves potentially. And in that situation, giving them equity is certainly you know a viable approach. Um, you know, again, the question is, you know, at what point, you know, how much do you give them and things of that sort, and that really gets into your business model, the risk level. Um, you know, how viable it is, those kinds of issues. And the attorney's going to have a particular view on that. If you do go that direction, one of the things that I would state that isn't so much legal um, advice as it is practical advice, make sure that you, you connect with the attorney. Okay. Uh, what do you make sure that, because they're essentially becoming a partner with you. Okay. And so you want to make sure that you're comfortable with that person. And you want an attorney who's going to do two things. He's going to talk with you not talk to you, not talk down to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody who's going to say, well, you know, here are the issues, here are the potential options, you know, and not just tell you do this and not give you a reason. Uh, and the second aspect of that is you're going to want an attorney who's going to actually do the work. So the way a law firm works is you have a senior partner uh, who's the person you'll probably talk to, and then you'll have associates, uh, different levels of associates. And uh, the reason why attorneys want to be senior partners is senior partners don't have to do a lot of the grunt work um, <laughs> with clients. So you talk to the senior partner, the senior partner says, we need these six things. And you say, okay. And the senior partner says, great, it'll be three weeks. And you leave. And the senior partner calls in six associates and gives them each one, one of the projects. And off they go. They do all the work. They come back and um, you know, give him the final product, him or her the final product. He then looks at it, reviews it, signs off on it, and sends it to you. That's the joy of being the senior partner. They're the ones out playing golf. Um, so, you know, and that's, that's fine if you're comfortable with that situation. But if you're looking for something that's a bit more one-on-one, you want to make absolutely sure you know, that that person is going to give you the attention you know, that, that you want. Um, and with foundation, when you're starting a company, you know, the lawyer um, – time is going to go in, in spurts. There'll be months when you need a lot of assistance and there'll be two or three months where you don't need any. Um, so it's, it's one of those things where you just want to make sure that you're, you know, you understand that, okay, you're committing to this person in one way for a while and, and make sure you're good with them. Okay, cool. Cool. So that kind of brings us to the end of what I'd like to call the nitty gritty part of your business. And um, as we start to wind down the show, you know, this segment talks mainly to the listeners out there in terms of like, you know, those that want to possibly pursue a career as either a legalpreneur, like you're like a startup internet business lawyer, or just kind of follow a similar trajectory doing what you're doing. Because like I mentioned, I have a sister who's a lawyer and she's um, exploring opportunities as it were <laughs> so speaking to someone like you it's kind of near and dear to my heart because i talk to her and i and i get the frustration in in her voice and i'm like okay let's let's see if we can, we can get this chick something that you know she would do and be happy with so um so all these questions are just kind of like you know getting your if you were to advise your little brother little sister or kid um you know, telling them, you know, hey, you can take these steps and see what happens. Um, first one, I say, I think we've covered that already, so I'll throw that out. But, um, what, apart from, like, the creativity and building things up, what else got you excited about um, 
standing on your own as a as a lawyer because i know even as a professional practice um lawyers typically hang out their shingles after a couple of years in the big firm but you know what really got you what gets you fired up in the morning these days um what gets me fired up i would have to say again it's i wouldn't say fired up but i would say it's just the lifestyle okay you know once you once you take that step and it's you know as with any business you know going out and taking that kind of risk is um you know there's a certain amount of fear involved in it to be frank um, but once you take that step you know and you get yourself established and you hustle for it um you know the ability to control your lifestyle for me is just everything you know i'll be quite honest mm-hmm. um you know, the ability, you know, I'm in San Diego, so the ability to, on a Thursday afternoon, you know, go meet up with a client and sit on, you know, porch on the beach and, you know, drink an adult, adult beverage or two, um, you know, that's just something I'd never do in a traditional firm. Mm. Uh, and and so for me, that's something that I enjoy. And again, you know, I think trying, if you're, particularly if you're a lawyer, picking a specific field that you're you're happy practicing in. Um, I have a friend who practices family law, which is divorce law. He loves it. I, there's no way I would do that. <laughs> you couldn't. You couldn't pay me enough to get anywhere near a divorce matter. I mean, it's just, it's just not possible. Yeah. Um, so really, you know, being honest with yourself and thinking, well, not, not what do my parents want or my spouse or anybody else. What, you know, what would make me happy mm. in regards to a particular niche. Um, you know, and with your sister, quote unquote, exploring <laughs> other <laughs> options, you know, that's, that's a, a valuable word in the legal profession. Uh, you know, their entire companies and sites set up to, to help lawyers, you know, look for other options, but, it, but there are aspects of the law, even with the stress and the time, you know, that are very enjoyable and it's just identifying those and then, you know, seeing how you can build business around those, whether it be a law practice or something. Uh, you know, related to it. Uh, and I think that's true for any business. I mean, I think that's where business ideas come from. You know, you're, you're identifying some aspect that you're interested in. Um, and then it's trying to figure out if there's some way to make money off of it. Uh, you know, that uh, other very, people would be interested. Yes. You know, unfortunately, I'd, I'd wish we lived in a utopia where money wasn't an issue, but you know, paying the bills obviously is, um, you know, but if you can find that aspect, um, you know, I have companies uh, that are clients that uh, they do some very boring things, but they're programmers. And it's not the subject matter that interests them very much, but it's the programming and the challenges they have in creating the systems. And they love it. And again, they're selling, you know, what I call toilet paper products. They're not sexy. You know, they would never be on a podcast. They would never be a, in a magazine. But it's something that every business needs. And and so that's how they build their business. But for them, it's the programming and it's the ability to do their own programming and not have somebody sitting over their shoulder screaming at them, you know, to follow company protocol. Um, so, you know, there are different aspects of the business that you look at and where you find, you know, that energy. Uh, but for me, it's, you know, definitely at this point, I'm in my 50s. So lifestyle um, for me is something that, you know, definitely matters. And um, so who's uh, an entrepreneur or as I call it, a legalpreneur you admire, and why do you admire that person so much? Oh, he's a legalpreneur. Wow, that's that's a good question. I've never <laughs> asked that. <laughs> got to promote my competition. Um, <laughs> there's a gentleman in Seattle named Rob Apgood, who is an attorney. I'm not sure he's practicing anymore. But when I first got into the profession, um, I enjoyed 
and still do, um, Rob, because he had, he was very confident. He does a lot of complex litigation related to internet businesses. But Rob was the type of person who would go into the lion's den. So he would speak at FBI conventions, okay. even though most of the FBI, you know, the FBI was primarily, you know, interested in going after his clients. <laughs> so he would, uh, you know, he, he was somebody uh, that I thought was pretty great, particularly since I was fairly new to the, the industry, you know, that he didn't, um, didn't present me with any errors or anything of that. So he's very helpful and uh, somebody I thought was an excellent attorney. And uh, I'm not sure if he's still practicing, but if he is, you know, he could definitely never go wrong using Rob. Something I was gonna ask you just escaped me. Okay, I'll try and come back to this. Okay, so let's talk about um, a significant personal failure you've experienced in your life, and how do you recover from that? Oh, personal failure. Well, you know, in '99, when I before I went to Russia. Um, you know, I thought that that really was a personal failure. It was kind of a the idea that I'd you know undertaken all this education and expense uh, to become an attorney, and then to practice for seven years and doing fairly well, um, and just to hate it. <laughs> you know, yeah. much like your sister, you know, wanting to explore something, I was just very unhappy, and it it raised questions for me. Um, I come from a Type A family. My father owns his own architectural firm. Uh, my stepfather is an attorney who owns his own firm. My mother was a CEO of a mobile phone company. Um, so there's kind of a, a track that you were expected to progress, even though they never told me they expected to. I just, you know, thought this was the way life worked. Yeah. And then I, th I think, and I did that. I was an attorney at 25, which is very young. Um, and, you know, and to get to that point, it was like, okay, I checked off all the boxes. Here I am. And wow, I'm miserable. Uh, <laughs> that was... You know, it was it was an eye opener to realize, you know, I really hate this, and you know, to realize that maybe okay, following the check the box approach maybe isn't the best approach to life. So for me at that point, you know, confidence was shot. I was I was very very unhappy, um, and uh, you know, I don't know if you classify it necessarily as a personal failure, but it certainly felt that way. Um, no, that, and no, so it take is, it does it does classify yeah, so, because i mean people like right now we're talking about a situation in the u.s where i have a lot of friends that have come out of law school you know hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and they can't find like um you know those good white shoe law firms to employ them and give them you know the great starting salary you know so there's a lot of um angst in the young sure. graduate community especially in the legal profession right now so they come out with the debt they can't find the job to to help them pay off that debt and they do, you know, just um, any job they can find just to get by. It, 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 it kind of feels the way you felt 25 years ago right now for a lot of young graduate lawyers. Absolutely. And let me say, just to be absolutely clear, that the environment that I was in when I came out of law school was about 10,000 times better than the environment of students coming out now. Um, the legal profession is undergoing a shakeout and the old business model when I came out was that you worked for a firm as an intern. And if you did good work, you were there for two years and you came out and they would give you a job or they would give X number of interns a job. So if they had 10 interns, they would maybe get five a job. Uh, and that was the model I felt I followed um, because we were a boutique firm. We weren't huge, but there were three interns. Two of us got jobs. 
And so that resolved that whole issue for me. Um, most firms are not like that anymore. The reason being that the old traditional billing models that they used don't work anymore. Um, so I'll give you an example for, for me with my firm, almost all my clients, a large number of them, at least I offer flat fee services too. So the client knows exactly what the fee is. Um, and we can talk and things of that sort and we don't run up legal fees. I don't charge them for mailing or any of that stuff. Well, all that stuff used to happen in traditional law firms. Mm -hmm. And so they had the money to grow. And they had the money to follow the traditional interns become associates model. And just most firms don't have that anymore. So if you're a law student coming out right now, you know, I commiserate with you. I understand the difficulties. Um, and so, you know, unfortunately I don't have an answer for it. Uh, it's difficult to hang out, a, you know, your shingle when you're directly out of law school. I understand that as well. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's, I think it's important to understand for people that are listening there in that situation, that's not a reflection of your abilities or your quality. Um, and particularly as a young lawyer, you're going to make some egregious mistakes. Lord, good Lord knows I did. Every attorney I know does. Um, cause you don't have any experience in the field. Um, but you know, I, I don't have a solution for how to get around the problem of finding a job. Um, but you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really necessarily consider that a personal failure. That's just the, the market, unfortunately, that, that people are coming into. Um, but yes, the angst and the stress and what have you, I certainly understand that. And, um, so what's a unique strategy that has helped you grow your business and your influence and your reach in terms of letting people know about your expertise as an intellect business lawyer, or helping you get clients and more referrals? Um, you know, for me, it's, it's, I'm a bit unique, um, in the sense that I don't, I don't enjoy networking, <laughs> which is kind of the best way to do it. Uh, and as we discussed before the interview, lawyers are limited in the way that they can market, although in the U S it's, it's more liberal than it is in other countries and regions. Um, so my, for me, um, word of mouth has really been, uh, you know, the key referrals, uh, but doing podcasts as well, you know, coming on and being interviewed on shows such as yours uh, has helped because I think lawyers certainly have a, uh, a stereotype personality that people expect. And um, I don't really fit that, or at least I hope I don't. Um, and so I, for me, podcasts have been great. I prefer the one-on-one -on -one conversation uh, with somebody that has more substance to it and length like we've had versus walking around at, you know, networking um convention or what have you or a show where you meet somebody for five minutes and you know walk off it's just not my strong point from a personality perspective um, and so for me podcasts have been great other people i know it hasn't um, i know other attorneys have tried podcasts and it has not um, but for me it's that's kind of been the thing that's really worked out um you know because my particular practice is really specific i mean we were laughing before the interview i'd done seo at one point and you know, the site got ranked and it was all wonderful. But the problem was, you know, I didn't get calls from the target market that I was, I was looking at, which were internet business owners. Instead, I got calls from people who wanted to see internet businesses, you know, which was kind of <laughs> counterproductive. <laughs> Not exactly the market I was looking for. Um, so, <laughs> so I've certainly made uh, errors. Um, Actually, I'll tell you about one error. It has nothing to do with me, but it was one of the funniest things I've ever heard, and the client has told millions of people this story. Um, they were doing search engine optimization and looking for opportunities, and they found a keyword that was candy shop. 
and there were millions of searches for it and almost no uh, no competition to get ranked. And so they built this whole candy shop distribution site and everything and uh, posted it on the web. And sure enough, they started getting tons of traffic. They went you know right up to the top of the rankings and were getting almost no sales. And then the cousin of one of them, one of the owners eventually told them, no, it's not. People aren't looking for a candy shop. It's a song by 50 Cent. It's a hugely popular song. You know? So they had built this whole site. I mean, they, they, they didn't spend a ton of money, but you know, they, they didn't obviously investigate the keyword to understand yeah. why people were looking for it. And I had told them, I said, why would people be looking for candy shops online? You know, it didn't seem to make sense to me, but you know, they showed me the numbers and I was like, well, I'll go for it. You know, look at those. And, uh, yeah, it was one of the great, great SEO stories of, uh, you know, the last decade. And to this day, people, you know, reduced to tears in the SEO field when they hear about it. Uh, I think everybody's made a mistake like that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's funny. And, uh, I think this is my second to the last question. So what are the type of books, um, podcasts or like training programs you listen to or you consume that help you stay sharp and stay on edge? And just become a better professional. Oh, you're not going to like this answer. Um, they're all legal oriented. Oh. Um, the law change, yeah, the law changes so quickly that I'm constantly, uh, you know, listening and looking at uh, commentary um, on legal issues just because I have to stay up with everything. Uh, you know, I don't. Uh, as far as you know, books that would be applicable to the listeners in general or the general public, business books and things of that sort. I just don't have time. Um, so it's, it's, you know, if anybody ever wants to, you know, go read, um, hold on for a second, let me try and think of Eric Goldman is a law professor. It has a blog, uh, it's called ericgoldman.com. Very creative. Um, you know, it covers a lot of internet law issues. Uh, Pascour is a law firm that has a whole blog on privacy issues, which, you know, you and I find boring, but they have important information. So I'm reading things like that. I, I'd love to tell you I was reading something inspiring, but frankly, it's all dry and <laughs> technical. Um, but I have to do it as part of my profession. And uh, the last question of the day is, um, can you share some words of wisdom for, you know, like we've talked about earlier, recent grads or young entrepreneurs um, thinking of like, you know, following the same career path and trajectory you followed into the business field? Uh, you mean lawyers or people that are uh, just entrepreneurs in okay, general? Okay, so A, let's talk about lawyers, and then B, entrepreneurs. Um, if I was a lawyer starting over again, I would be very specialized, extremely specialized. Um, you were talking about your friends who have come out and found it difficult to get jobs. Um, I think becoming specialized in a field um, that is complex uh, would be uh, a method to get employment. So, for instance, right now I could tell you if you came out and you were an expert in privacy law, uh, international privacy law, the difference between privacy in the EU, the US, Asia, um, any of those cross-border transactions, you would get snapped up immediately. Um, and the reason for that is they're complex and companies have to deal with them. There's no way to avoid those issues. Um, so I think from a legal perspective, that's really the way to go. Uh, and I've, to be honest, I've even considered <laughs> specializing in something of that sort, uh, just because it is so lucrative. Um, privacy in particular companies are paying massive amounts of money for, uh, because the penalties are huge. So for in the EU, for instance, if you fail to comply with their privacy law, 
the new uh, regulation goes into effect 2018. The penalty is up to $20 million um, or 4% of your gross revenue worldwide. So if you consider a company like Facebook or Google, uh, those are some large numbers. Um, and so anybody that's a privacy expert in the legal field you know, that can guide that company on those issues, um, they are in great demand. As far as just a general entrepreneur, uh, you know, the thing that I would tell people, I tell them all the time is just go for it. Um, speak with a lawyer, spend half an hour with them, whatever, just to make sure what you have in mind isn't going to, you know, cause you any problems from a criminal legal procedure. And I'm not suggesting that people you know, are going to commit crimes. The problem with the Internet is some of the criminal laws that apply are very broad uh, because they're trying to address hacking. And so, you know, sometimes if you were to use a cookie or something with another site, you know, you have to be careful and make sure you're not crossing any lines. Um, but once you do that, then just go for it. Go for it. And you might fail, but if you fail, you're going to learn. Um, you're going to learn that aspect. Of, I have a, a very good friend. It's not an online business, but it's an apparel business. He tried an apparel business once, and it was just a disaster from the first minute to the end. Made every mistake you can imagine, and the company eventually sold off uh, for next to nothing to another company. And you know, now he's starting another one, um, and this company looks like it's going to be very successful. But he he learned from all the mistakes he made in the last one. And so this this business is not only looking like it's going to be successful, but he skipped a lot of the errors that he made in the last one. And he's also learned to move past issues that took up tons of time and energy uh, in the old company that don't really they're not necessary to deal with. Um, you know, with an apparel site, there are certain issues that are particular to that industry, but other issues that you would be worried about, you know, in an online business don't really privacy isn't really a huge issue. Those kinds of things. Um, and so he's better positioned on this business. You know, it's certainly things look good now. Um, so don't be afraid of failure. I mean, we all fall on our face eventually. Um, you know, the, the key is just to keep keep going at it. And, you know, if you're interested in the issue, um, you know, then do it. Nice. And um, it's a, been a great chat for the past hour or so. I was just thinking to myself that, you know, as you're thinking of niche marketing, for privacy, you should probably snap up something like uh, SoCalPrivacyLawyer.com. Right. <laughs> you know, you never know when you might actually have to use that and brand yourself into that. Um, it, it may well be a good move. Yeah. You know, the SoCal, the SoCal Internet Lawyer domain that I picked, I, I, I picked it because I live in SoCal, Southern California, and SoCal is an abbreviation we all use. Yeah. But I didn't realize most people aren't aware of that, and so they actually will say social internet lawyer. And they're always like, eh, not, not really what I meant, but <laughs> so, uh, you know, so again, another candy shop example. Yeah, but um, it's also, it, I think it also adds to this um, thing in your mind where it's like, oh, the social internet lawyer. I, I automatically had like, oh, this guy's going to be gregarious and fun. I, I didn't notice it was so calm initially. I, I got to incorporate more jokes into my answers. <laughs> yeah. Great. So, uh, dude, it's really been a pleasure having you on the show to talk about your business, your experience, your adventures. For the past one hour, I've really learned a ton of business, uh, business advice from you, especially legal advice. And for those of you guys that are listening out there, I know there are a lot of um, digital nomads and entrepreneurs that 
listen to the show from abroad and then they do business in the uh, US and you're thinking of like, you know, talking to somebody about your business issues, please feel free to reach out to Richard. I'm going to put his um, website and his contact details on the website, socalinternetlawyer.com. And you can just Google him at um, Richard Chapel. So it's been a pleasure, Richard. Thanks for coming on the show and um, I wish you many more successes and look forward to talking to you again sometime in the future about um, all the other funny, crazy stuff absolutely. you're doing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you for having me on. It was a great hour. Don't let another minute go by without taking action to change your life. Visit Ordeshi.com right now for more incredible resources, and we'll see you next time on Ordeshi, the Bulletproof Entrepreneur.